Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Well, this is the final week of our uh, series through the Apostles' Creed. I hope that you've not only come to uh, enjoy the series, but I hope that you've fallen in love with the Creed. And I hope that you have found its value not only, and its beauty, uh, not just for its place in our corporate life together, but also uh, in your own personal practice of faith. And we have journeyed through this creed, and while we have done that, we have confessed together a belief in a God who is both personal and powerful. Uh, but he does exercise his power in the way that we typically think of uh, power. Uh, but rather we learned that, that this is a God who exercises his power uh, through a word spoken, uh, bringing all of creation into being and then infusing his own character into that creation. Uh, we also confessed belief in, uh, in the picture of God who is given to us in his son, Jesus Christ, who is both Lord, meaning sovereign over us, and Christ, meaning the anointed one. We also confessed belief in Jesus who took on the sin of the world and died upon the cross. That was, in fact, the ultimate act of love and vulnerability. But this was also another demonstration of the kind of power that God uh, practices in our lives. The power of God looks like self-sacrificial love. He entered death, he tasted it fully, and he overcame it through the resurrection. And the victory of over death is, in fact, the first evidence of God's intention to make all things new. And it is also the foundation of our very hope that Christ will one day appear and all things will be made new once again. And then last week we explored uh, the Spirit and the church, uh, looking at the two lines that we we believe in the church universal or the holy uh, Christian church is what we've been saying, uh, and the Holy Spirit. Now if you missed last week, uh, we had um, the sanctuary arranged in such a way so that all the chairs were facing the communion table, uh, which was set up right in the middle of the room. So what would be now considered the middle aisle, uh, we had the communion table right there in the middle aisle and all the chairs facing uh, each other uh, facing the table. Uh, Many of you gave us feedback about that and how that made you feel. (laughs) Uh, And we we recognized that it was a little bit different, but we did that because we wanted to tangibly express uh, what we've been saying throughout this series, which is uh, the creed unites us uh, with Christians across time and across expressions. And so the way in which uh, we are used to expressing our worship before God, the way in which we're used to structuring our worship services, uh, isn't the only way to worship. Uh, And so we came to learn and to see that there are different ways uh, of worship. So we worshiped ways, uh, last week we worshiped in ways far more similar to our ancient brothers and sisters than what we're used to today. Um, We also use that as an opportunity to affirm the unity of the church through the Spirit. And then listen to the Apostle Paul's words Uh, that we are called to embody that unity through humility, gentleness, and patience. Today we'll finish the creed, our study of the creed, by highlighting the last two lines. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Uh, With that being said, I want to invite you to recite the Apostles' Creed with me uh, one last time during this series. Uh, We won't do it every week as a community, but we certainly will uh, return to it from time to time. So let's uh, recite the Apostles' Creed together. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. 
he descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. As we begin our study and our exploration of these last two lines, we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I want to read to you some powerful words from the Apostle Paul that he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 through 55. And I just want you to listen to him this morning. I didn't give my scriptures to our audiovisual team because I want you to just hear the word of God uh, this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 54, says, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? And where, O death, is your sting? In this classic passage about the resurrection, which is actually all of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, the Apostle Paul appears to be mocking death. When he says these famous words, where, O death, is your victory, and where, O death, is your sting? Uh, if you're anything like me, you may have a hard time identifying with the, uh, with the audacity of the Apostle Paul here. Uh, because the reality is, uh, death is difficult. Uh, the reality is, death does sting. Uh, we learned this even from the earliest ages. When I was a child, we had a, name, uh, we had a cat that we named Mama Kitty. Uh, We named the cat Mama Kitty because she roamed the neighborhood and had a lot of different babies that all looked different. While we weren't thrilled with her sense of morality, we we did love her uh, a lot anyway. Uh, So we loved Mama Kitty, and Mama Kitty really became uh, a member of our family. Uh, But we lived on the corner of a busy street, and driving home one day, uh, we saw Mama Kitty in the streets. She had been run over. This is actually my earliest memory of death. Uh, Our whole family cried uh, because we had lost a member of the family that day. You see, there's something wrong with death. There's something wrong with death. And we we don't even have to be told that. We just just intuitively know it from the earliest of ages. Um, Which is why I feel like these words from, from the creed and this A staple of Christian theology is so, so important for us. Uh, We have to hold on to the words, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Uh, This morning I want to say to you that resurrection is is God's answer to death. Uh, This thing that is, we just intuitively know does not belong, this thing that we intuitively know is something Uh, There's something just not quite right about it. This thing that is painful, this thing that does sting, uh, God has an answer to that. Uh, And the answer is is resurrection. In fact, in the magical story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, and and you'll notice that these stories are finding their way into almost every sermon now, uh, and I'll do my best to keep that going. Uh, But these, these stories are so rich. Uh, But in these stories, four children find their way into the mystical land of Narnia through the back of a wardrobe. Now, once there, they meet uh, the king of Narnia, uh, who is a lion named Aslan. Uh, But they also meet the evil white witch, uh, who has cast a spell on Narnia so that it is 
what the book says, it is always winter, but never Christmas, uh, otherwise known as January. Um, so at the climax of the story, at least that's how I feel in January and February, and then again when it snows in March, and then when it snows in April, I'm just really depressed. So, uh, but at the climax of the story, the white witch actually kills Aslan, who gives his life uh, for one of the children who had become a traitor and sided with uh, the white witch. But then in a twist of fate, Aslan comes back to life to the joys of the children who had just watched him as he was killed. Aslan then explains that the white witch was unaware of a deeper magic that had been placed in Narnia before time, before the dawn of time. And this is a quote from the book. If she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. You see, the resurrection of Christ and the hope of our own bodily resurrection means that the twisted finality of death is actually reversed. And it gives us hope of brand new life. Uh, And I think that's really important for us to begin to understand that our hope rests not only in the resurrection of Christ, and, and yes, that is the foundation of our hope that is central to our faith, the death and the resurrection of Christ, but we need to go so far as to also understand that what this creed also affirms is that you and I have hope also for bodily resurrection in God's new creation. And so what the creed affirms for us is that the hope of Christianity is not just a metaphorical kind of new New life, like a spiritual awakening or, or life uh, in a disembodied heaven. What the creed affirms for us and what scripture affirms for us over and over and over again is that our hope is in physical, bodily new life. But in fact, the reality remains. Physical death will one day conquer us all. And so it kind of stands ominously out in the distance. And the reality is, is that whenever we see it draw near, whenever we come right into the face of death, we pray against it and we pray for healing. And I want you to hear me today that we should, in fact, pray for healing. But can we also just admit out loud that we live in a world where, for very complicated reasons, reasons we, we cannot even seek to understand, that sometimes God brings healing miraculously, and other times he does not. Sometimes the healing comes, sometimes it doesn't. And what I've seen as a pastor is that in the moments when we pray fervently and passionately and full of faith for healing, and then for whatever reason it doesn't come, it tends to also lead to a a crisis of faith. Um, and if you, in case you might, in case you think that uh, I'm young enough that I don't know anything about this, my my own father passed away way too soon uh, from cancer in a battle of cancer, for which we fervently prayed for healing. And so, uh, this is something that I've thought a lot about, and and I, I think that I, I wonder if we can learn as Christians to come to a place where where we pray passionately, full of faith, and fervently for healing. And yet at the very same time, we don't fear death. Because the reality is, is that because sort of this, this death lies 
out in the future, sort of ominously waiting for all of us, the, something that we can't escape. Uh, we, we often fear death. We, we tend to be afraid of death. And I, and I just, I encourage us to begin to reframe our thinking to see that this confession of belief in the resurrection of the body actually affirms God's desire to heal. In fact, I would say to you that every mysterious act of miraculous healing actually forecasts the full redemption of our bodies. That what God is doing and what God is up to in the moments when he does choose to heal is he's actually affirming this thing inside of us that says we want healing, we desire healing, and we believe that God desires healing. Anytime that he brings that, God is affirming that, yes, that is true, but he's also pointing us and forecasting us to the, to the full redemption of our bodies. And sometimes we lose sight and we narrow our vision of what salvation is, and we talk about it only or exclusively in terms of our spirit or our soul, that our souls are saved. And what God has intended for us. And the good news of Christianity is that God intends to redeem all things, including our physical bodies. The salvation doesn't have such a narrow scope as just what we would call the soul or the spirit. But every time God heals, God is affirming his desire for the redemption of the body as well. And so even healing from disease does not release us from eventual death, right? Even healing from disease does not release us from the grip of eventual death. And so we need to begin to see and to understand that healing points us to God's healing heart and the redemption of our bodies. I'll never forget uh, when we learned the news that my dad was uh, very, very sick. In fact, when we found out about uh, the pancreatic cancer, it was in stage four. And so we had a decision to make. And pancreatic is is, uh, one of the most uh, fast-moving Uh, difficult forms of cancer. And so uh, when you get it diagnosed at stage four, the prognosis is not very good. And so I remember uh, we were sitting in the hospital room and and we had a decision to make. The decision was, uh, do we try to fight this or do we just put dad into hospice and wait it out? And we were sitting there and we were talking about it. And all the immediate family was there. My dad's parents were there, my grandparents. And I'll never forget, my dad's dad, um, who, by the way, had already buried one of his three children and now facing this prognosis for another one of his kids. Uh, he, said, he said these profound words. You know, it seems to me... Uh, that we don't so much fear what comes after death. We fear the the process of dying and death itself. I thought, man, that's a lot of wisdom. You know, we're we're sitting here in this room not, not wondering about my dad's eventual hope, but looking at the, the process of dying. And and it seems to me that we fear so much death and the process and the pain of dying. And and while I, I don't want to say, oh, we shouldn't fear that or we shouldn't feel that way, I I do want to say that there is there is a whisper into that 
conversation. And, and the whisper into that conversation is, we believe in the resurrection of the body. That, that there is a hope made available to us, even in the face of death, that, that we can hold on to, that we can grasp onto. In fact, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that one of the most audacious things to do as Christians is to hope in the face of, of the hopeless. Um, and I think that's true even when it comes to dealing with, dealing with death. Um, singer-songwriter Audrey Assad, if, I, I try not to use uh, the pulpit as commercials for bands that I like, but occasionally I do. Um, and so you need to listen to The Brilliance if you haven't, and then you also need to listen to Audrey Assad. Uh, Audrey Assad sings this incredible song uh, called Even Unto Death. And it talks about not fearing death because of the hope that we have in Christ. Uh, It's a song written where it's essentially saying that I will be faithful to God and offer Him praise even unto my very last breath because I have hope in Christ and the resurrection. In fact, here are a couple of the lyrics Jesus, you are my only hope, and you my prize shall be. Jesus, you are my glory now and in eternity. Lover of my soul, even unto death, with my every breath, I will love you. In fact, uh, the song is so profound. Um, actually just want, I actually just want to play it for you. Uh, so we have a lyric video for this song. It's about four minutes long, uh, but the entire song is well worth our time uh, to listen to today. So let's, uh, let's listen to Audrey Assad, Even Unto Death. You see, a full understanding of resurrection gives us the audacity to stand with the Apostle Paul and say, Where, O death, is your victory? And where, O death, is your sting? Because the hope of resurrection means that death itself is being reversed. Amen? Now, it would be fitting, and it is fitting, that eternal life then would follow the resurrection. A confession that we believe in the life everlasting. Whenever we think about eternal life, uh, we often think about it in terms of what is yet to come, uh, or a life that will go on forever after we die. And that's certainly the case, uh, particularly with the hope of resurrection. But I think there's more to understand about life everlasting. First uh, John chapter 5, beginning with verse 11, says this, And this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I want to read verse 11 again. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Now, there are a lot of ways to define life. There are lots of ways to think about life. 
Uh, at its most basic definition, uh, life is animation, breathing, a beating heart. Uh, but I would say to you that there is more to life, and that life is, in fact, more than mere animation or a beating heart or lungs that breathe. In fact, you may know someone that is biologically alive, and yet you would describe them as being lifeless. And so when the scripture says God has given us eternal life and it is found in his son, we need to ask the very important question, what in the world does this mean? Well, the Germans have a word for it. The Germans have an answer to everything, do they not? I thought I'd give, a, I thought I'd give an amen for my German friends, but uh, apparently not. There's not many around. I know there's one right over there. Anyway, um, so the Ger- or at least who likes Germans. <laughs> The Germans have a word for it, and they refer to it as Zainzucht. Zainzucht. Zainzucht is a German word referring to our deepest longings. Uh, It could also be, uh, you could also understand it this way. Uh, Zainzucht is the craving, our craving for something that we can't fully identify, and it feels as though it is perpetually just out of reach. Zainzucht, our deepest cravings, our deepest desires, or the craving for which we, don't even, we can't even articulate and feels always just out of reach. Uh, in short, I would say Zainzucht is our search for life. And I believe this is what the scripture is referring to when it refers to eternal life. It is, it is life that is found uh, in Jesus Uh, It is not only a life that goes on forever after you die, but it is also the abundant kind of life that is available to us right now. And so I want to to say to you that eternal life is not just uh, a quantity of time or life, but it is also a quality of life. Eternal life is not just a quantity of life, it is also a quality of life. And by quality of life, I do not mean a big house by the lake and a boat. But rather, I mean the kind of life that goes beyond just a beating heart and lungs that breathe or animation, but to the very thing that says, I am experiencing life in its fullness right now. And what we are trying to learn as a culture, and I would argue that what we are also trying to learn as a church, is that life cannot be found in the abundance of things. In fact, if you look around your own life, if you're discerning about your own life, if you look around at the life of of culture or the life of other people, you'll see that, that what we are caught up in as humanity is a desperate search for Zainzucht. We are looking to answer the craving that we don't even know how to articulate. The desire that we know is is deeply rooted in us, but we don't even know exactly what it points to. And I believe that whenever Scripture talks about eternal life, it's at least pointing us in the direction of of the answer to this craving. That life can only be found in Jesus. Life can only be found in Jesus. Life cannot be found in, in a big house on a lake with a boat, but it can be found in experiencing the beauty of who God is. And I think a lot of times, all of our frantically searching for life, all of our, our, our desperate search for Zainzucht actually 
prevents us from actually finding it. That it's the desperate pursuit that actually is a barrier to finding it. That if we would slow down enough to see the beauty of God and the gifts that He has given to us that are all around us, we might then just be entering and stepping into finding life, eternal life. But I'm also more and more convinced uh, that this life is found only by experiencing the unconditional love and forgiveness of God. If you're anything like me, so much of your life is spent just trying to prove yourself. Just trying to like do something, say something, convince someone that like that like you're okay. And the Lord is consistently teaching me that life cannot be found there. Life is only found in experiencing the love of God and His forgiveness. You see, the creed says, and we didn't spend a lot of time here, we didn't, because we had to get to Advent. (laughs) But the creed says we also believe and we confess in the forgiveness of sins. And the forgiveness of sins is an absolutely central part, an element of the gospel that we proclaim and the gospel that we come to celebrate and reenact every single week. Because it is the forgiveness of sins and in the forgiveness of sins that we begin to experience the love of God in our life. It is also the act in forgiving one another that we begin to experience Zainzukt, this life, this craving. Because we recognize together that holding on to animosity, holding on to unforgiveness, holding on to all of these things that we may feel toward other people or toward entire groups of people are actually just kind of building the prison walls around our own heart. And so we believe in the forgiveness of sins, first because it's central to our experience uh, of the love of God for ourselves, But secondly, it's also central to the experience in in what it's like to be in community with other people. You cannot be in community with with anybody, any kind of significant community, with not eventually being disappointed and having to offer forgiveness of sins. And so this life, this eternal life, this this zainzuk, the answer to our craving is found in in not just knowing about God, but but knowing God, seeing the beauty of God and experiencing the love of God, experiencing the forgiveness of God. I want to read a a passage from this phenomenal book by uh, Greg Boyd. The book is called uh, Benefit of the Doubt. Um, And and he writes writes a little bit about Zengzut. Uh, And he says this, he says, I've come to the conclusion that the most important aspect 
of our inner longing is a need to experience God's perfect, unconditional love. A central aspect of what this means is that we long to know in an experiential way. I think that's important. Not just that we long to know up here, but we long to know in an experiential way. We long to experience that we have unlimited and unsurpassable worth to God and that we are absolutely secure in this love and worth. And then he goes on to say this. Whether a person knows God or not, the degree to which we feel anything approximating this unconditional love, unsurpassable worth, and absolute security is the degree to which we feel fully alive and at home in the world. I want to read that again. Whether a person knows God or not, the degree to which we feel anything approximating his unconditional love, our unsurpassable worth, and our absolute security in Christ is the degree to which we feel fully alive and at home in the world. To the degree that we don't experience this, however, we will remain hungry, out of place, and less than fully alive. You see, as we've, as we've been talking about this creed, these confessions, this collection of belief, statements of belief, I want to make sure of one thing as we end this series. I want to make sure that we understand that life, eternal life, true life, authentic life, cannot be found from a system. It cannot be found from a doctrine. It cannot be found from certainty. It cannot be found even in denomination. Nor can life come from a better job or a more loving spouse or well-behaved kids. If you are looking for life in any of those things or any combination of those things, you will find yourself consistently let down and disappointed. Sure, those things may bring some sense of life for a season or for a little while, but they will ultimately leave us disappointed. Our well-behaved kids will eventually misbehave to some degree or another. If we build up our, our, our sense of life in the certainty of belief, then the first time that those beliefs are, are called into question or we experience a season of doubt, then the whole thing comes crashing down. If we build up our sense of life into a system or a denomination, then eventually we will, that, that, that system, that group of people that make up that thing will eventually disappoint us. Our life can only be found in Christ in Christ alone. Our life is only found in Jesus. And may I say to you that life cannot come even from this creed. But I do want to say that if life is found in experiencing and knowing on an experiential level the love of God and the forgiveness of God, I do want to say that the creed can help us experience that love. We can't, find creed, we can't find life in the creed itself, but the creed can point us to the source of all life. You see, the creed tells the story, tells the human story in many form, from creation to new creation. Did you know that whenever we confess the creed together, we are in fact telling the human story? It begins with the creator God and it ends with life everlasting. 
And these statements, what we have called confessions of belief, these statements provide stepping stones into a story that is much larger than ourselves. And yet we are still invited to read ourselves back into this story. And what I mean by that is that confession of belief in Jesus Christ our Lord is an invitation to actually live our lives with Jesus as our Lord and as our Christ. Belief in the communion of saints is an invitation to life in community. Belief in the forgiveness of sins is actually an invitation to have your own sins forgiven. Belief in in Uh, confession and belief in resurrection and life everlasting is actually an invitation to experience the hope of life and resurrection. And so what the creed does is the creed itself is an invitation to accept and to experience God's love through the story of a creator God who has redeemed his people. And so I want you to see the creed as we end this series. I want you to see it not just as this static statement that is old and makes no difference in my life. But rather I want you to see it as a confession that the story of the gospel is in fact true. First of all. And then I want you to see it and recognize it for what it is. Which is an invitation to begin to align our lives and our hearts and our spirits and our minds according to these anchors of belief. That how can we together confess these things? No, we don't just confess them. We actually confess them and then seek to live them out. That, that the story of the gospel is one that we receive and then give out. It's, it's love that we receive and then we go on and then love other people. And so at its core, the creed is an invitation to experience the love And the beauty of this God who saw fit. Not just to create the world and then just let it be and see what happens. But it's an invitation to experience the love of God who saw fit. To breathe all that is into existence. And then in seeing our brokenness, work to redeem us. So that we have the hope that one day we will experience the resurrection of our bodies and the life everlasting. Amen.